This is Footnote Forum, a production of the Law Review at the City University of New York School of Law. I'm Rachel Goldman, your editor and host. This year on our podcast, we will be focusing on highlighting the work of bail fund organizers throughout the pandemic and the movement for Black lives. My staff and I are here with our special guests, Asia Johnson and Megan Diebel from The Bail Project. So, Asia and Megan, could you both introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about your organization and your roles within it? Yeah, um, I can start first. So, Megan, um, I am a bail disruptor in Detroit, Michigan. Um, My role is, well, first I'll start with what we do. Um, (laughs) The Bail Project is a nonprofit that um, pays for people's bail, um, 5,000 or less. Um, We really believe in the freedom should be free. Um, and we operate under the community release model. So once we post someone's bail, we're not just, um, done working with folks after that. We provide them services they might need, court reminders and transportation. Um, and yeah, and so that is really what I do here in Detroit is I work alongside social workers, public defenders, community members, um, finding those, um, those people inside the jail that we can pay for bail, um, and have as our clients. I'm Asia. Um, I've been working for the Bail Project for a little over two years now. Um, I started off as a bail disruptor in Detroit, uh, like Megan, and was on the ground posting bail for people who were in poverty. And now I have transitioned to the communications team where I am the communications associate. And I am responsible for amplifying the voices of our clients, where I interview clients, talk to them, see what their experience was like within the criminal justice system. And then we write those stories and we we do different things with those stories. If it speaks to like a larger theme, we try to pitch it to um, news networks and try to just bring light to this to this injustice that happens every day. Um, or also we use our social media platforms to amplify our clients' voices, just getting the folks educated on the cash bail system and the horrors and the like trauma that it causes people every day. Um, and the bill... Project, like Megan said, it's a national nonprofit. We're in 24 sites across the country. Um, we've posted $30 million in bail since we started. That's for over 15,000 people. And uh, we have over 500,000 uh, individual people who have donated to us. So I will jump in with the second question, which is, um, what is the role of community awareness about these issues in your work? And Do you have partners in the Detroit community and to what extent does the community guide the project's vision, decision-making and work? Yeah, Um, I think community awareness is so important and vital to the work that we do. Um, Like I said, we operate under the community release model support. Um, So working alongside of communities and seeing where as a team, we can knock down barriers that our clients face once they're home. I mean, we see so many issues um, access to housing, access to employment, access to mental health services. And I think that's why it's so important that the community be aware of these issues. Um, That way, like, we can really come at this from, like, a holistic approach. Um, And I also think it's great that we have a communications department that gives us the tools and skills to work um, and kind of provide that educational piece. And then our partners in Detroit, we work a lot with Neighborhood Defender Services, which is in Detroit and also Harlem. Um, What I really like, I really, what I like about working with them is that on the team, when we're working with clients, we have public defenders, social workers, and then us. 
so our clients really feel supported and have like that wraparound services and there's like three people believing in them as they're going through their cases um and yeah like i said too that's where we get a lot of our referrals um public defenders offices here in detroit um and then for your the next part about what extent does the community guide um i really think of the summer when there was tons of protests and uprisings um we worked a lot with other nonprofits in Detroit to offer jail support, um, like Michigan Liberation, Detroit Will Breathe, um, to really make sure, I mean, you know, that they're supported as they're fighting for these important um, social justice issues. Hi, y'all. Um, thanks for coming. Um, what are common misconceptions that people hold about the cash bail system and or other pre-child detention mechanisms? I think some of the biggest misconceptions about the cash bail system, one is that cash bail is affordable. Um, it was historically designed to be affordable and that money would bring people back to court. If they had skin in the game, they would come back to court. That is a misconception. Today, cash bail is not affordable. And the myth is that money brings people back to court. With our work, we realize that it is not money, it is support, it is transportation, childcare, access to mental health services, access to health, physical health services. Um, these are the things that bring people back to court. It's not money. Um, we find that in our work, clients are missing court not because they want to, not because they don't care, but because they don't have access to the things that they need. And so that's one of the misconceptions. Another misconception is that um, in order to get rid of cash bail, we need to replace it with um, algorithmic risk assessments or ankle monitors. And those are, we don't believe in those. Those are just extensions of incarceration. And if we want to get rid of the cash bail system, we have to replace it and use our model or, you know, community, as Megan said in the last question, the community has to be there to support people who are coming home from jail. And Without the community, everyone is set up to fail. And so those are some of the misconceptions. I also think that people usually think that people who get out on bail are only going to create more harm to their community. And it's only a very, very small percentage of people who are out on bail who commit additional crimes. The majority of folks, they do not commit more crimes and they actually end up resolving their cases and either their charges get decreased uh, or they get dismissed altogether. And so we see that a lot. And just imagine like you're in jail during COVID and you court dates are being pushed back and pushed back. So you can sit in jail for six months, maybe even a year, and then only to find that your, your charges get dismissed. So you sat in jail losing your livelihood, your job, maybe custody of your children, your home, and all because you didn't have the money to buy your freedom, which is a huge injustice. And these are all myths that I think that people should definitely be aware of. All right. Um, so how has your work changed your perception of the criminal justice system? So as a person who's been personally impacted by the system, um, before working for the Bell Project, I was incarcerated myself. And I remember sitting in jail and one of my cellmates um, was this beautiful young girl. She, she was in the midst of an addiction and she had, um, I can't remember what her charges were, but she sat in jail for four months 
on a $500 bond. So she needed $500 to walk free. She didn't have it. Her family didn't have it. I would hear her on the phone constantly begging her family, like, have you gotten the money together? Could you please, could you please work something out for me? And her charges were eventually dismissed. She went home and shortly after she actually died, um, she overdosed. And I, and her story haunts me because we got so close to in those four months and I knew how badly she wanted to get clean and the jail is not set up to support you it's not set up to get your needs met if you have an addiction like you may have a meeting or two but what you really need that support jails don't offer that and so you know, that was that was one of the turning points for me, seeing the injustice of cash bail. And then later on, reading about Khalif Browder and, you know, that story has stuck with me also. And, and it wasn't personal, but it also just like was a cherry on top of the of what I needed, what I knew I needed to do to change this system. And so when I came home in 2018, um, I knew like I had to make a difference and I had to get back to a community and I had to make changes for people who are caught up in this system. And I finally got this job with the bail project. And I knew like I had made a home that I had found a home in my work, but also in my personal life because professionally I wanted to make a difference, but personally I wanted to, to help people. Um, and so one of the stories that, you know, that sticks in my mind too, is one, a young girl that we're, we're helping right now and she's 18 years old and she was held on cash bail on a bond that exceeded our means, but with advocating for her. And I know Megan mentioned the $5,000 ceiling, but sometimes we have to work extra hard if people have a bond that exceeds that. And, you know, if we're able to support people that have a bond over $5,000, you know, sometimes we are able to help. And we helped this young girl and now she's in her senior year of high school. She's finishing with all A's and she has a job interview tomorrow. And it's stories like that that remind me of like why, why we do this work in the first place. Yeah, and then kind of going off of what um, Asia expressed or shared about her client, it makes me also think about like my perception is just like how deeply rooted this issue is and how much it just impacts more than just our clients too. Um, and that's also as a family that's been impacted by the justice system. Um, I think that's just growing and growing the, the more I see that. Um, and I had a client last year. I remember when we do the intake, we ask, you know, what can we do to help you get to, uh, to return to court? Um, like what, what do you need from us? And, um, he expressed that he didn't need anything, but he takes care of his grandma and he's a caregiver. Um, and that he needed help taking care of his grandma and getting re resources for her. And I think that kind of just made me take a step back too, and like realize how much, we can do with the resources and power when we're just helping one person. It, it kind of has a, tri a triple down effect. And then I was going to say also like how my perception changed before I was incarcerated myself. I was a college student at U of M and I never ever thought about people who were incarcerated because that didn't touch me. That didn't affect me. And I just think about how selfish and like naive, not even selfish because it wasn't that I didn't want to think about those things, but naively I thought 
everybody that is behind those gates like has done something they have harmed their community they have harmed someone and that's where like that's where you go and my perception has changed so drastically because now I know that like no human being deserves to be in a cage and I wholeheartedly believe that instead of prisons and jails we should have healing spaces for both the person who did the harm but also for the people that were harmed and so that they can come together and and truly heal from from whatever trauma has occurred and I just it's it's bizarre that like it took me working for the bail project and my own incarceration to actually come to this to this realization that cages aren't meant for human beings. We don't even I don't even like putting my dog in a cage. So just think about putting putting individuals, but also like Megan said, like then you're you're incarcerating an entire family when you incarcerate one person who's so um, like important to that to that system. And how do you see your work fitting in the larger movement to end pretrial detention? And what are some of the connections between your organization's work and this larger movement work? We know that like bail funds are an immediate but temporary solution to a humanitarian and constitutional crisis that is happening in our jails. And the cash bail system is the biggest driver of mass incarceration. And so what we're doing, we're alleviating like immediate pain for the individual, but we're also advocating for, for real systemic change. And so we have an entire policy team now that is working towards making those changes in communities that we work within. So for example, in Washtenaw County, um, Ellie Savitt has just ended cash bail and Twyla Carter, who is the national director of policy and myself worked in that working group um, that kind of uh, affected Ellie's decision-making in ending cash bail. And he ran on that premise and actually talked to the bail project um, while he was still campaigning um, to get educated on, on this issue. And so we see that happening in Washington County. We see Gascon in LA ending cash bail. And the Bell Project is supporting these efforts and, and amplifying the data that we collect. Also, we made uh, suggestions to the Biden-Harris campaign about how to end cash bail, how to give states incentives to do so, and what our model looks like in releasing people without cash bail and actually supporting them. And so, I mean, essentially we are working ourselves out of a job. And that is what we all want to do. Like we come into this job knowing that we want to end this system and hopefully we will not have jobs in a couple of years because we will end this horrific system that is incarcerating people because of poverty. And I just feel like after we end this, like they're going to be, I mean, people think like, why would you want to work a job that you, you're not going to have like long-term, but we think about the people that are coming through the system every single day and they cycle in and out because they don't have that community support. And so my plan is like, once I do work myself out of a job that I can be part of that community still that is supporting people who are coming home. I don't know if Megan wants to add anything or if we move on to the next question. Yeah, no, I think Asia did a great job and I've explained that. And right now in Washington County, since that is in Michigan, um, you know, Asia was doing the front end of that work. And now we um, are kind of stepping in as that community release 
support model. Um, so where we might not be posting bail in that community, we are um, kind of like acting as a bridge for resources. Um, you know, there's resources in Washington. They've been doing this work, but when I often see, see our clients get overwhelmed on how to access resources. And when you have that person that can just listen, um, help you, guide you, I think that's just so important. And I see that um, that's where our role is moving in that county. And um, I think it's going to be really exciting to see that and also how that can kind of start to trickle down um, into other counties in Michigan, like Wayne County, Macomb County, Oakland County. Um, so... You know, we'll just see what happens. So Asia, you spoke beautifully about how in an ideal future, the bail project is kind of out of business, so to speak. Um, I'm wondering if both of you could speak a little bit about um, what your vision of the future of the system looks like. Um, are you looking at a future in which pretrial detention is abolished fully or where cash bail specifically is replaced with some other form of mechanism? Um, what does the future look like? The only thing that we want to replace cash bail with is community release with support. It doesn't include ankle monitors or electronic monitoring. It doesn't include algorithmic risk assessments. It solely includes releasing people with a community that can give them access to the things that they need. So like Megan said, like we're even when we don't post bail, we're still giving them transportation to and from court. We're still, and, and that includes like if they have a job interview, maybe they they don't have transportation and we can get them there and back. We do that. Um, giving them reminders because sometimes people just forget life happens. And so they need like a phone call or just like somebody to listen. Like Megan said, like it's easy to get overwhelmed. And I think for me, what I envision is what the constitution originally said, like we are all presumed innocent until proven guilty. And unless you are, a threat to the community, a violent threat to someone uh, or your community at large or to yourself, um, then maybe we put you in a space where you aren't a threat to anyone. Or if you are going to flee and we know that you're going to flee, but for all other, for the criminalization of, of addiction, like we have to abolish that. We cannot hold people in jail simply because they have an illness, um, mental health treatment, like all of these things, when you're in jail, you don't have access to. And so what I'd like to see is, is a, world where nobody is held pre-trial. I mean, honestly, I like to see a world where nobody is held at all in a jail or a prison. But for right now, for purposes of like the cash bail system, it shouldn't be used. Like you should not be sitting in jail because you don't have money to buy your freedom. Freedom should be free. And if we are operating under what the constitution says, that means that no one should be held at all because we're, we, unless you are a threat, like I said, and a threat means that you are going to hurt someone. A threat means that you are going to leave and we will never see you again. And for most people, neither of those things are true. People do want to come to court. People do want to resolve their issues and put this behind them. And also, I believe in a world where second chances are given. Second, third, fourth chances. Like, 
people should not be defined by the worst, their worst mistake or any mistake. I mean, just imagine as a college student in that one time that you accidentally forgot to cite your source and now it looks like you plagiarized. And now for the rest of your life, people are like, yeah, well, we can't hire you because that one time when you plagiarized or every interaction that you have with a suitor, with an employer, with your parents, uh, with your friends, all the time that that one thing that you did is brought up. And I just want to work within a world that is looking at people's best sides and believing in people achieving success and being their best selves. And I agree with what everything Asia is saying too. And I think this makes me um, think of Detroit where electronic monitoring is so frequently used with our clients. And I know that's um, other places, not just Detroit too, but um, some people think that's freedom, but it's really not right. Like you still have to report um, to your parole or probation officer. Um, and what it looks like for us when clients have um, electronic monitoring is we have to make sure that they have two working phone numbers of friends or family um, that can be confirmed by the tether unit and an address to live. Um, and that often, again, is another barrier for our clients, right? Um, they might not have housing. And then with records, it's even harder to find housing. Um, and just even, you know, two people with two phone numbers, I mean, that's that can be often a huge obstacle we face um, here in Detroit, and I'm sure other cities too in the bail project. Um, and right now, I'm thinking too, like what is the vision and the future for the system? I'm really looking right now at Atlanta, how they just um, used that money to build a community center in downtown instead of the new jail. And I just feel like so many cities can use that model too, right? Um, having that center where there's just resources and not like where you go, you know, to get locked up. Um, I think that's something that's guiding me right now when answering these questions. What types of changes have you seen now that the public interest world has shown more interest and more financial support towards bail reform? So we've seen, like I said before, you know, some jurisdictions abolishing the cash bail, the usage of cash bail. Um, and a lot of this was sparked last summer with the murder of George Floyd and the protests that were happening. Um, and we saw last summer, like Megan and I were busy, busy uh, posting bail for protesters in Detroit. And the bail project got, I mean, in a lot of bail, uh, a lot of bail funds across the country, you know, got an influx of donations because of what was happening. And so sometimes it, it, it takes something as tragic as that or, you know, awareness, public awareness of an issue to get people to think to themselves like, hmm, I didn't even know about that. And now that I know about that, I'm going to act. I'm going to donate my money, my time, maybe intern. I'm going to pay more attention to elections. Um, that's one of the things that I think is most important. I think Megan's going to touch on that, too, is like paying attention to who you vote for and not just like our president, but like local level elections are important. Um and, you know, it's sad that it takes money. Like, we live in a capitalist world where money makes the world go round. And money is what it takes to get people their freedom right now. So, like I said, like, we're providing, like, a temporary solution to, like, a problem that is so much bigger. And we we posted so much money in bells for people. And a lot of those protesters last summer um, in Detroit, like their charges are being dismissed. Um, 
and, and we're getting that money back. And so our, our we work on a national revolving bail fund. So once, so say you donate $100, uh, let's say $500. You donate $500 and we post bail for one person and that person's case comes to a close because they've attended every single court date. No matter what happens at the end of their case, whether they're found guilty, innocent, charges are dismissed, we get that money back and then we're able to help the next person and the next person. So that money never stops working. And even when we are able to like in cash bail, all of the money that we've accumulated is going to go back into those communities that we've done work in so that those um, resources can be, you know, uh, amplified by, by more money. And which means, unfortunately, more money means more help. Yeah, I agree with everything, again, Asia's saying. I think also, too, um, there's just more and more conversations about cash bail. I mean, I think oftentimes people didn't even realize what it was or what was so bad about it. Um, and I think with these conversations, we're just, again, like furthering that reach of education and awareness. Um, so some people that may not think that they had a role in it at all are starting to pay attention. And I th just think with numbers is where you really begin um, to build that power and pressure on these systems. And there's a lot more information about like the world we imagine after cash bail or the world that, that we will make happen at aftercashbail.org. And it's a plethora of information about what's going to replace cash bail or what we believe should replace cash bail. And again, like it isn't an extension of incarceration. Awesome. Thank you all so much for these responses. Um, um, could you all speak a little bit about how COVID-19 has impacted your work um, this past year? Yeah, COVID has impacted our work so much. And it's crazy to think that it will be a year soon when we were sent home. Um, I think it was like March 13th. Um, but before COVID, we were able to go into jails and courts. Um, we were going into the jails to do the intakes with um, folks. Um, in person and then going to the courts, um, you know, to sit with clients during their hearings and stuff like that. Um, now that's all completely moved um, to Zoom, at least in Detroit. Um, so we're doing Zoom intakes with clients that are only 15 minutes. So it's a little bit harder to establish rapport. Also just the timing of 15 minutes and just not being able to be there in person. I'm um, doing the intake. Um, Zoom hearings are definitely in the beginning, it was really hard for clients to access and get that technology. Um, court dates were being pushed further and further back. Um, again, putting kind of holds in their life. Um, and something we don't necessarily see in Detroit, but we've seen in other cities with the bail project um, as bail disruptors are moving to pay bail online. There's um, fees and fines that go into paying the bail online, which just, again, increases how much you're having to put back, like, as bail. Um, and that is mainly just thinking of people posting their own bail, you know. So much more money is being added to that. Um, and again, I think Asia talked about this too, but jails are just not a place where social distancing can happen. It's not designed for that. Um, there's more and more urgency for this work. I mean, there was always urgency, but just really increasing that. And also I think what we're going to start to see too is making sure that people inside are getting vaccines. Um, you know, there's so many people that go in and out of the jail daily. Um, there's, it's just so tight spaces inside of jails that, I mean, we saw last year how many outbreaks were happening in jails. Um, and now I think this year it's just going to be focusing, okay, how do we get those vaccines in to make sure we can decrease those numbers inside? Um, 
So that's really how it's impacted our work um, quite a bit, actually. I was just going to, you know, as from a comm standpoint, you know, I really like to like sit with my clients, sit with our clients and, and talk to them and build that trust. And, you know, if you're going to sit down and talk about this trauma, you want to know that you can trust this person. And it's hard to gain that trust over the phone or through Zoom. And, you know, even as as a bail disruptor, when you sit with a client in the jail, there's something about like that bond that happens. Like there's like a tie, like a, a, a transfer of energy that that's trust based. And it's hard, it's difficult because of COVID to like actually build that relationship in a really like authentic way. And recently um, with COVID, like I traveled through the South um, to collect client stories. And we got, we had to get COVID tested prior to leaving midway through our trip. And then at the end of the trip, and we had to like stay, you know, six feet away from our clients and wear masks. And it's, it's really, it's like not being able to like hug someone that, that you've helped and that wants to hug you or, express their appreciation for like their freedom because you were able to like put money up. And so COVID has really like put a strain on, on the trust building between client and, and advocate. And from a comm standpoint, it just makes my job a lot harder. I'm asking people to share their worst moments or a moment where they felt like there was no hope. And how do you get somebody to do that over the phone? So um, our next question is, you know, we understand that bail reform is a legislative strategy um, where you know you're working to change the law around bail. Um, so we're wondering what other strategies we could use to supplement that. What are other changes that we could help to make? Um, and then how can we as law students and lawyers that might be listening to this podcast, how can we work to change public policy? Yeah, I think we, um, Asia kind of mentioned this, but I mean, I, I think we saw so much last year, how much voting on a local level can really impact change. I mean, we see that in Washington, with Ellie as the new prosecutor, um, you know, we vote for judges and prosecutors. Um, and that really is like where we can start to create that change. Um, and I think like tools and skills is just really working in the communities and working alongside of groups. Um, I think there's just so much, again, like, like I said, like so much power that comes when it's a team effort. Um, and I think that's just important, especially when working in public policy to have that lens of like micro and macro work. So like listening to people on the ground, but also knowing that like you have the skills to like write that policy to like collect those stories, that data that's being told and just sharing that and policy. I think storytelling, um, when you're working on that policy, policy level can be so powerful because it's really speaking to the hearts of people um, and honoring the people that have gone through these issues. I think too, like as law students and our future lawyers, um, being bold, like I think about Amanda Alexander at Detroit Justice Center. I think about Robin Steinberg who were like, this is wrong and I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to start this nonprofit and I'm going to hire people who've been impacted by the system. Like just having that boldness to actually use your voice. 
say what you imagine, because there's so many people I think that live in fear, like, oh, if I say I'm an abolitionist, what does that mean? Or if I say I want to abolish the cash bail system, what does that mean? Like, just sticking by sticking to your values, amplifying your values, and then like action behind the things that you say. And as lawyers, like you have so much power, so much power. And like putting like so much positivity in power and sharing that power and like making it so that like your clients are being helped. They're being helped from every, like how we talk about NDS, how they provide you with a social worker and a bail advocate and your public defender. And also like sometimes you have to even like work within families to like, like Megan said, her client whose grandmother needed help, like you have to kind of as lawyers be like all hands on deck. And I think just like realizing the responsibility that one has um, to your client and not just to your client, to yourself and to the world. Um, yeah. And then everything Megan said about policy, policy. And that, that made me think too, when talking to clients, how much um, they just appreciate their public defenders that communicate and just do simple check-ins and ask how you are. And I know that sounds so simple, but that can just mean the world, someone when they're going through these cases, because we, you know, we see public defenders get um, overworked and have so many cases. So even just those simple things, I think can just make it like the world of difference um, to them. And I mean, that's what we hear from our clients all the time. All right, and uh, just to kind of round out our discussion, uh, was there anything else that either of you would like the lawyers or the law students listening to this podcast to know? That's a really good question. Um, <laughs> I think we've kind of said this a lot, but really law, like lawyers and law students just knowing to operate in a holistic approach. Um, I, I've just seen how much that has started to create change. Um, and knowing too that um, as lawyers, you're giving, like to give the power to the client. I think oftentimes the power goes into the, the case, the systems and just know it. I mean, I mean, it's good to go there too, but <laughs> just trying to create more humane practices and the, the language as well. Yes, Megan, I agree with everything you just said. Megan and Asia, it is always a pleasure. Thank you so much for being here um, and chatting with us and answering these questions um, so beautifully and sharing your experiences. Um, we all really appreciate it. My staffers, thank you so much for writing these brilliant questions. You guys rock, all of you. And thank you guys so much. Thank you for having us. Thank yeah. you so much. Thanks. All right. Bye. Bye, guys.